James chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We have seen the purpose of the Lord, that he is compassionate and merciful because we are still alive and have not been consumed by our own propensity to do what's evil and to do what's an abomination to him. Last week, we noticed three things about oppression and injustice. First, we noticed that God sees. He is aware of oppression and injustice. He knows what's happening. Second, we saw that God hates oppression and injustice. And then third, we saw that God will judge oppression and injustice. I preached an odd sermon last Sunday, admittedly, and gave a message with almost zero application, uh, which included a lengthy recitation from the Federal Writers Project Slaves Narrative documentation from 1938. And I made all of you sit here and listen while Laura Abramson described her parents' experience as slaves in America before the Emancipation Proclamation. And then we asked ourselves four questions. One, do you have more than you can use and yet hoard it from those who are in need? Two, have you cheated people out of what is owed to them? Three, have you observed oppression and injustice with indifference? And I resisted the urge to make application to this because it's so exclusive and pointed last week, but I've just been overcome this time. I can't refuse it again. The observation of oppression and injustice can be as simple as something that you see happening on the internet to someone with whom you have zero personal connection. If you watch with glee as somebody else suffers or is in, in, in some way injured, and the answer to this question would be yes. Do you, have you, observed oppression or injustice with indifference? So that goes mainly to our younger people. You see a fight at school and find it entertaining? Fourth, have you condemned, slandered, or murdered the innocent? I swear there's somebody backstage walking around. It's creeping me out. If anybody dives out with a gun, just do this. I'll tuck and roll down the front here. Uh, have you condemned, slandered, or murdered the innocent? So we asked those four questions, and then I challenged you. Well, not then, but I also challenged you with the following statement. I said, Christian... You are going to have to believe me at some point when I tell you that the judgments of God in Scripture are given for your comfort. 
You are not always in the crosshairs when the scripture is pronouncing judgment. In fact, if you're in Christ, you're never in the crosshairs when the scripture is pronouncing judgment. God is making a promise to his people concerning oppression and injustice to encourage us in the midst of our trials, Elise. But I said last week, we have to wait, Elise, until this week, Elise, to see what else God has to say about injustice. Well, that's not Elise. So that's what's before us today. Three points coming your way if you are a note taker. Ready? Unrealistic expectations fuel doubt, discouragement, and anxiety. Unrealistic expectations fuel doubt, discouragement, and anxiety. Two, the realistic expectation set by Scripture is not that our lives will be easy. Three, we must not, as a church, grumble against one another. Now, these things seem unconnected, but bear with me as we make our way through this passage. First, and you already have this written down if you're a note taker, unrealistic expectations fuel discouragement, doubt, and anxiety. Luke chapter 24. We will pick it up in verse 13 of Luke 24. That very day, two of them were walking to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So what's going on here? Why are these disciples depressed? Key verse here is 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, here's the thing about that, Cleopas, an unnamed disciple. He is the one to redeem Israel. And he's doing it even as they speak to him. But the expectation that they had was not realistic. It was not an accurate expectation. If the expectation is only redemption... And the outcome of the situation is not redemption, but death. Then disappointment is an understatement, right? Oh, here comes the redemption. Nope, the redemption just died. 
That's not going to result in disappointment. Unmet expectations of that magnitude lead to something far worse than disappointment. When it comes to the providence of God, unmet expectations lead many people to consider one of two blasphemies. Blasphemy one, God is not good. Blasphemy number two, God is not powerful. You get to this place where you begin to suspect either he's not good or he can't do anything about this situation because it's horrible. Whatever I'm going through is horrible. And it's fascinating to me because some of you are like, I would never say that or think that. It's fascinating to me that James brings up Job because listen to Job. This is Job 30, 16. Now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured and it binds me about the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire and I've become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me and the might of your hand persecutes me. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. And I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins, stretch out his hand and in disaster cry for help. Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. Job charges God with oppression and injustice. Because his life got just that hard. The same Job who is cited by James for his steadfastness had a moment where he wondered if God was good. He wondered if God was just. Believe me, brothers and sisters, if you've never wondered, maybe you didn't say it out loud, but if you've never wondered whether or not God is good, you've been preserved from suffering. Because there are moments in human life when it seems like the only explanation for the trouble and sorrow which come upon us is that God is indifferent to evil. If you've never wondered if God is powerful, you've been protected from the worst kinds of evil on this planet. In the course of Joseph Stalin's 30-year reign of terror, one million were imprisoned or exiled between 1927 and 1929. 9 to 11 million people forced off their lands. 2 to 3 million people arrested or exiled in the mass collectivization program. 6 to 7 million killed by an artificial famine from 1932 to 1934. 1 million exiled from Moscow and Leningrad in 1935. 1 million executed. A million executed during the Great Terror of 1937 and 1938. Four to six million dispatched to forced labor camps and at least one million arrested for various political crimes from 1946 to 1953. So here's the question. Why didn't God protect these 30 to 60 million people? In the four years... Pol Pot ruled Cambodia, 1.7 to 2.2 million 
people died from forced labor, starvation, disease, torture, or execution? How many were terminated in Hitler's diabolical concentration camps? Six million seems to be the number that everybody's landed on. The horror show of human history is actually almost a little too much for a Sunday morning. Don't you imagine some of those people wondered if God was somehow just incapable of helping them? When you are separated from your kids and herded into a gas chamber and choking on the air, don't you wonder if God cares? How could he allow this to happen? I assure you they did wonder. We have their diaries and testimonies. And anyway, all right, so how does this relate to James 5? Well, what's the expectation set by James 5, 1 through 6 that we covered last week? God sees oppression. He's aware of it. God hates oppression. He can't stand it wherever it's happening. And God will judge oppression and injustice wherever it is happening. That's the expectation, right? But what's reality? Frequently, those who engage in oppression and injustice are getting away with it. Frequently. Laura Abramson described her father being strapped down and whipped 500 times. And then another slave being appointed to rub salt and pepper in the wounds. Now, that might be hyperbole, right? How could a human survive 500 lashings? I'm sure it was something more humane, like 50. I mean, how many times is it acceptable to beat another human being who you claim to own? What's the acceptable number? Well, it doesn't matter, right, if it's one or 500, because lightning did not strike the one who was wielding the whip. It was allowed to happen. Nobody stopped Pol Pot after the first thousand deaths. Nobody stopped Hitler after the first hundred thousand Jews had starved to death. And nobody stopped Stalin after the first million that he killed. So what are we to conclude? What if my house gets vacuumed up by a tornado? What if I get fired for no reason and can't find a job? What if my wife leaves me for no reason? You'd all be like, she had plenty of reason, bro. But from my perspective, right? What if my family gets plowed into by a drunk driver and maimed or paralyzed or killed? What if my house burns down? What if my spouse dies? What if my kid gets cancer? What if I'm watching my child suffer and can't do anything to help them? Yeah, we've all seen these things happen. They play out in the news or in our lives with somebody to whom we're connected regularly. If it hasn't happened to you, then you get to sit on the high throne of judgment above the rest of us who have sometimes wondered if God is good or if God is powerful. Because when you're in the midst of that level of human sorrow, it's very easy to believe he either doesn't care or he can't do anything. Promises of prosperity health and popularity start to sound extremely ridiculous when you have multiple connective tissue disorder and your organs are failing or your wife's are. Realistic, reasonable expectations are essential to us. Do you understand? Realistic, 
reasonable expectations are essential to us. Look at verse 7 because that's where the expectation is set. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Oh, great. You got to keep going. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Patience is always rooted in reasonable expectations. I believe that. If you are successful at being patient, it's because your expectations to begin with were somewhat realistic and were within the bounds of reason. Nowhere does the word of God promise us anything other than this. Listen to me, please. Concerning the future. Nowhere does the word of God promise us anything other than God will set the record straight. Let me show you. Romans 14, 12. Don't turn. I'm going to go through these 10 very quickly. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Every last human being will give an account. That's the scripture. You guys okay? You all right? You look angry. Have I made you angry? All right. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every deed, good or evil, will be brought to judgment. 2 Peter 2, 9 and 10. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they revile or blaspheme angelic majesties. God isn't missing anything. He doesn't need our help keeping track of what's happened. And he isn't unaware of your suffering. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there will be recompense, repayment, restitution for every good and every evil thing in human history. Matthew 12.36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So there will be an accounting for every word uttered by every human who has walked the earth. I wish my words were fewer. Romans 2, 15 and 16, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So not just deeds, not just words, but every secret of every human heart will be judged. 2 Peter 3, 7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So we're, we're awaiting judgment along with the entire creation. We're in the midst of a period of waiting right now. It's where we're at. 1 Timothy 5.24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So sometimes 
we see little glimmers of God's judgment in time. Somebody does something bad and they get caught and they suffer for it immediately. Sometimes that happens. Matthew 24, 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and, giving, and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. When they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If anybody tries to tell you they know when Jesus is coming back, they are lying. Unless they just say, he is coming back eventually. That's all you can say. Revelation 20, 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Dead and alive alike when Jesus comes back will be caught up and judged by every single thing God has written in his book concerning them. And I suspect as good as I am at keeping track of everybody else's trans transgressions, God is probably better. Probably keeps a more accurate record, right? So James tells us very specifically to be patient until that day. So if we see flashes of judgment in 2023, we should praise God for them. We should get really excited when we see flashes of judgment now because that's a kindness of God that should not be expected. It's not a realistic expectation that all of the miscreants and lizard people who are running our country will suffer the judgment they deserve today. It's not realistic. So if you get all angsty and wound up rocking back and forth in front of Fox News, like you're the one with the problem or CNN, or like whatever. I don't, I don't have a preference. That's not true. <laughs> if we see no flashes of judgment day by day and begin to get discouraged by the oppression and injustice we see happening in our culture, we need to remember this. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's the goal, right there. To help us grasp this, James illustrates it with this picture of a farmer. See how the farmer waits, this is verse seven still, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruits, fruit of the earth? being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
All right. One of my favorite things is when textual scholars, people who are experts at the biblical languages, uh, explain to people like me who are experts at the gospel, <laughs> the application of the gospel is what I mean to say, to my own sinful, wicked heart. When, when textual scholars let me know that the apostles and pillars of the church were too dumb to understand that Jesus wasn't coming back in a couple of weeks. In spite of the fact that if you take the scripture as a whole, doesn't, gosh, wasn't it Peter that said something about the prophets of old wrote things for our benefit? Didn't he say that? And isn't it within the realm of possibility that the apostles of old now wrote things for our benefit? When you hear somebody who's an expert in Hebrew and Greek tell you that, that well, they expected Jesus to, people were sitting on their roofs because they thought he was coming back any minute, including Paul. That's not true. They did not know when Jesus was coming back because Jesus said, only the Father knows. But they lived as though his return were imminent, and that's what we're charged to do. Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Since we live in the land of commercial farming, we see this year after year. Barren fields plowed over, rows of dark brown on top of light brown for weeks. And then suddenly on your drive to church, you realize, oh, there's green stuff popping up in that field. And then like by June, the crops are as tall as me or as tall as my son was when he was six. By August, they're waving in the wind, filled with corn cobs. We're accustomed to seeing it, right? We know that it will happen. Most of us have planted gardens, flower gardens or vegetable gardens or fruit gardens. And so we know these things take time. So James lays it out in those terms, like the farmer who puts a seed in the ground and then waits patiently. And then the rains come and lo and behold, it bears fruit. Imagine you plant a seed in your starter pot. And two days later, you look in there and there's nothing. So you dig the seed up and you inspect it. And you're like, hmm, looks the same. And you stick it back in and wait a couple of days, still nothing. So you pull it out, look at it, looks the same. Stick it back in and repeat this for eternity. That seed is never going to germinate. What do you have to do? You have to put it in the soil, water it, and be patient. If you're patient, you get results. Patience, waiting on things to unfold, yields the promised result. So this is James' instruction to us. While oppression and injustice are going on seemingly unabated, what are we supposed to do? Rant and rave and write Facebook posts about the corrupt leftists and what a liar the CDC is. That's not what it says. Establish your heart. Be patient. For the day of the Lord is coming. Expect this. Rest in this. Tell yourself this truth often. 
Establish your heart in the soil of God's promises. Psalm 73 should be well known to all of you. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. In case you tuned out, he's talking about people who are oppressors and unjust. That's who the psalmist is saying. He's talking about people who do oppression and injustice. They're not in trouble as others are. People that do this evil are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with evil and folly. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And and then they say, how can God know? I'm getting away with it. God doesn't know because I'm getting away with it. Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's us. What's the point? Why am I diligently guarding my heart from evil? If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Then when I, saw, I thought how to understand this, when I thought how to understand the difference between the oppressors who live fat and happy and, and wealthy because they're ripping everybody off, the difference between them and the church, which is puny and a remnant and kind of sad and we're struggling with anxiety and depression and most of us probably need therapy because we have like personality disorders. When I compare those two things, I go, this doesn't make a lot of sense because the gospel says that I'm supposed to be healthy and wealthy and popular. But that's, that's not what the gospel says. And a wrong expectation will yield all kinds of wrong-headed ideas about what God wants from his church and for his church and what we should expect as a result. So the psalmist says, when I pondered to understand this, it was a wearisome task. Until I put foot into the sanctuary of God and then I beheld their end. What happens to the unrepentant, unregenerate? What happens to the one who spends his whole life oppressing and doing injustice? How does it end for them? Well, they're going to die. I mean, for sure that's going to happen. But then there's a thing that's going to happen that we can't see yet which is they're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And believe me when I tell you this, take the worst bureaucrat at the whatever government agency right now that's visiting the most evil on this country. I mean, it would have to be the IRS, right? Take the worst one of them, and and if you could, wrap a chain around them and drag them up to the precipice of hell and throw them in, you would not be able to do it because what that's like is so destructive and horrifying that your hand would be stayed, yet God is going to. 
He's going to equip them with a body capable of suffering forever. And then that's exactly what they're going to do. Suffer forever. I beheld their end. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Laura Abramson put it this way. The Lord puts up with such wrongdoings and then he comes and rectifies it. He does it that very way. That's what she said. And we should say the same thing about God's judgments when they aren't poured out quickly enough for us. And we wonder, is God good? Is God powerful? Oh, he's good. And oh, he's powerful. And his day is coming. We have to be patient. One sure way we know we are not in the crosshairs of God's judgment. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So we're like, we're right back to the use of the tongue. I've driven home before. Church was me, 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 me. I've done that. Since we've been here, folks, I don't, I'm not talking about like, I'm talking about in the last 18 months. So-and-so was, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't do this. The word is stenazo, moaning, sighing, complaining, groaning. And, and these things just can have no place among the fellowship of Springfield Baptist Church. Think this through with me. When you grumble against a brother or a sister, what are you saying? They did something. Okay, all right. That's not grumbling. An acknowledgement that something happened is not grumbling. Grumbling is... When you hear your parents arguing in the bedroom, that's grumbling. Right? You know they're talking about you or your brother who might be a pothead. That's grumbling. What you're doing when you do that with a brother or a sister, you're not doing it to them. Like if I have my problems with Jonah, I'm not, I'm not grumbling to Jonah about Jonah. That's not what the word of God suggests. Who am I talking to if I have a problem with Jonah? Well, Jonah's not in the car on the way home from church, is he? So who am I talking to? Whoever's with me. Or I call up somebody. <laughs> Right? What you're doing is saying, God's not dealing with their sin swiftly or brutally enough for me. Now let's think that through. If that's a brother or sister, that means their sin was dealt with in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if what's happening to them is insufficient for you, what do you want? Do you want Jesus to go back on the cross and suffer some more? No. No, we don't want that. Well, then don't grumble against one another. Of course, we're going to offend one another, but our differences should never rise to the level of the differences we have with those who oppress and commit injustice. Amen? Let's never, as a church, treat one another as unjust oppressors. 
The Bible gives clear means to deal with wickedness when it's going on in the midst of a congregation and grumbling is nowhere listed. I'm guessing most of us have seen what happens to a church when it's got a lot of grumblers in it, right? The bonds of fellowship are broken, the battle lines get drawn, everybody's it's horrible. Furthermore, grumbling among church members is always an invitation to affliction. If you don't listen to anything else I've said this morning, listen to this because this is for your preservation. This is for your good. Grumbling by a Christian is always an invitation for affliction. When do we start in on one another except because we have time and energy to notice one another's warts? Right? Start looking around. Huh. Look at that. Well, you wouldn't have time to do that if you were busy, right? You know how God loves to get us busy real quick? I told you all I'd been caught up in a YouTube algorithm uh, a few months ago, which assumes that I am profoundly interested in sheep herding told you the story of the sheep like right before they shear it they give it a bath and they throw the blanket and the hood on it and then they cut it loose with the rest of the sheep and it, they all look at it and go what is that and start running away and then the sheep with the blanket and the hood on it's like what's going on and it tries to stay with the other sheep and hilarity unfolds well the other thing that I've seen a lot of is these sheep dogs that that herd sheep and and these videos of the, the shepherd giving commands with signals and sounds to the dog and the dogs go tearing off out, you know, 100 miles away through the field. And what happens when you cut the dog loose is the sheep tend to run together. So if we're kind of spreading out and making room for, you know, I don't want to sit next to brother so-and-so or sister whoever because they offended me. You're inviting affliction because what God will do is he will cut the sheepdog loose and all of a sudden you'll be like running together if you are a child of God. I would prefer to be judged as a congregation which guarded one another, loved one another and prayed for one another. If you start grumbling, if you start grumbling, just be ready for some affliction in your life because that's how God chastises his children and behold. The judge is standing at the door. Yeah. Quick review and with this I'll be done. Three points we've made here. First, unrealistic expectations fuel doubt about God's love and power. When we suffer, we might wonder if God loves us or we might wonder if God is powerful. Unless we understand that suffering is part and parcel to the Christian life. If Christ learned obedience through that which he suffered, what makes us think we won't? A word of encouragement. Brothers and sisters, we will have sorrow in this world. But take care. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Second, we are waiting. Our expectation is for the day of the Lord's return. That's the expectation. That's realistic. So when we encounter trouble and sorrow, we must learn to cling to the promises of eternity that much more closely. Look, if you've got a debilitating uh, terminal health issue, I'm not allowed to encourage you with promises that you're going to get better. Do you want to know why I'm not allowed to do that? 
because I've seen cemeteries before. And I know that's where I'm headed. When I have some debilitating pain or new thing, I'm like, great, not even 43, and that's permanent now. I'm so tempted to be like, oh God, deliver me from this. I know you will. Let me have a breakthrough. Let me claim the victory. It's tempting because that sounds better than real life. And real life is we suffer. We struggle. Don't be surprised by the ordeal as though you're expecting to skip into heaven with your hair perfectly styled. It's not how it's going to go. It just is. Finally, in the meantime, let's not target one another. Right? In the absence of sorrow and suffering, human beings have a remarkable ability to create some. And I just want to make sure we don't, as a church, engage in that by picking at each other. Because the judge is standing at the door. And how awful would it be for us if the door opened and the judge came through right as we're in the midst of running somebody down? Oof. And I know where I'm going. But I don't want to go like this. I want to go with my arms held high, worshiping. All right, let's pray together.